This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Um, last episode, depending on when all the episodes actually got aired, we talked about COVID. Uh, this time we're talking about diabetes. Uh, John, how are things on your end? Uh, things are good. Uh, yeah, kind of status quo, if you will. Just managing this fourth wave of a pandemic that uh, was supposed to be preventable. But hey, here we are. Yeah, go Calgary or Alberta even more broadly. All right, John, what's the first article you're talking about today? Yeah, so the first article is uh, the effect of dapagliflozin on ventricular arrhythmias, resuscitated cardiac arrest or sudden death in DAPA-HF. This was by Curtin et al. and published in the European Heart Journal in August of 2021. Okay, I don't think we've ever reviewed anything from the European Heart Journal. So, John, what was the research question for this study? So the question was, what is the effect of dapagliflozin on the incidence of ventricular arrhythmias, sudden death in patients with congestive heart failure and reduced EF? Okay, awesome. I'm a big fan of SGLT2s, um, but why was this important in your mind? Well, as we talked about before, I mean, I think we're getting close to putting them in the drinking water, but SGLT2 inhibitors have been shown to reduce worsening heart failure and death from cardiovascular causes in patients with CHF and reduced EF. Uh, in fact, I, I mean, now we got to review the paper, but there's a signal for a preserved EF as well. Regardless, a ventricular arrhythmia is a common cause of death in patients with heart failure, and it does lead to some patients being considered for things like ICD placement. SGLT2 inhibitors uh, have benefits in a few different ways, including related to LV remodeling. There's thought to be impact on the autonomic nervous system, as well as effect on cardiac sodium channels. And so, you know, based on what we know about SGLT2 inhibitors and risks of cardiac complications in patients with CHF, why not look to see if they lower the risk of arrhythmias and death? Yep, I'm sold. So what was the design for this study? So, the design here was a post hoc analysis uh, from the DAPA-HF trial. And this was really a key trial showing that there was a lower risk of worsening heart failure and death from cardiovascular causes in patients who were on dapagliflozin. So the trial itself was a double-blinded placebo-controlled randomized control trial. The patients were randomized to 10 milligrams of DAPA versus placebo, and that was added to standard of care. The general inclusions so patients had an NYH of 2 to 4, an EF of less than 40%, and an elevated BNP. Uh, they were excluded if they had, you know, you know, meaningful hypotension, uh, if their GFR was less than 30, if they were type 1 diabetic. The outcomes in this kind of post hoc analysis was time to first occurrence of any serious ventricular arrhythmia, resuscitated cardiac arrest, or death. And death was classified into both cardiac and non-cardiac causes. And they looked at serious event records for any indication of like a ventricular arrhythmia, be it VT, VF, or torsades. Cool. This is fascinating stuff. Uh, what did the patients look like who were included? Uh, so... Out of the 4,700 patients, about 2.4% of them had one episode of serious ventricular arrhythmia reported. Uh, there were 500 cardiovascular deaths and 41% were adjudicated as sudden death. Compared to patients who did not experience the composite outcome, um, compared to patients who did, they were more likely to be male, history of ischemic heart disease, lower EF, but you know, with that said, it was 32% versus 30%, a higher BNP, a longer duration of congestive heart failure, and worsening renal function. All right, sounds good. I mean, I guess you didn't actually really tell us what the patients looked like, though, but I won't push you too much on this. Like, I remember this study, average age mid-60s, they had diabetes for a long time, high heart failure, cardiovascular risk, etc. Um, does that sound about right? 
Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> all right, cool. What were the main results here? So for patients that were randomized to dapagliflozin, they had lower rate of composite outcomes, which was that serious ventricular arrhythmia, resuscitated cardiac arrest, or sudden death. The hazard ratio was 0.79 with a confidence interval that was 0.63 to 0.99. So it just made the cutoff. Uh, there were also a bunch of other subgroup analyses. One specifically showed that DAPA did reduce the risk in patients without ICD, whereas there was actually little effect in patients with an ICD already implanted. I guess that makes sense. I mean, uh, you know, unless your ICD, the Energizer, you know, bunny battery has run out, it should be protecting against those arrhythmias, right? Hopefully sufficient. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So what were the limitations here? Uh, so, you know, this analysis was not pre-specified and they actually, if you look through the results, they did a ton of analyses and they didn't actually adjust for multiple comparisons. So, you know, that is what it is. Uh, ventricular arrhythmias were also identified through event reporting, but not where we're kind of like, it's not like everyone had a Holter monitor on or anything like that. But I mean, realistically, if someone has like a VF or VT event, chances are they're showing up to medical care or there's going to be a death certificate that you find. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't care as much about p-values as you do. And I think in this study, this is all hypothesis generating. Do as many freaking analyses as you want. I don't care where your confidence interval ends, um, but let's just see if this is reproduced. But it's pretty freaking cool, and there's a good mechanism for it. Anyway, what's the take-home point? So the take-home here is that dapagliflozin is associated with a reduced risk of ventricular arrhythmia, resuscitated cardiac arrest, or sudden death in patients with CHF and reduced EF. Okay, and is this practice changing for you, or are you going to let your patients die of cardiac arrest uh, from arrhythmia? Well, when you put it like that, uh, I mean, look, as you've already identified, this is hypothesis generating. Uh, but for our patients with a reduced EF, they've already got a reason to be on an SGLT2 inhibitor. And so I think if anything, this just helps enforce the importance of these medications as part of standard of care. Yeah, you know, I completely agree. What is kind of shocking to me is how seldom we prescribe SGLT2s to patients on GIM, especially on discharge. I'm not sure what your practice is like or your colleagues practice, but certainly in Toronto, there's certain hospitals that like won't even let you start a patient on an SGLT2 while they're in hospital. And I certainly don't agree with that practice. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think I've done it a lot of times, to be honest with you. I think I've been kind of lucky. Like some patients have already been started on it because we've got like a really solid heart function program here and they're pretty aggressive getting their patients on these medications to begin with. But yeah, there's still like little hoops you got to jump through for some people to get them started on them. So eh, should be standard of care though. So we should be thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. I'm handing them out left, right, and center. Okay, well, you know, I was going to talk about um, SGLT2s, but uh, Amol Verma and Kieran Quinn um, recently recorded an episode for us, and they sort of stole the punchline with the um, Emperor Preserved, was it? So anyway, I'm going to be talking about SGLT2s, um, older, not-as-cool brother, which is a GLP-1 agonist called f peglinotide does not roll off the tip of the tongue so the study was cardiovascular and renal outcomes with epeglinotide in type 2 diabetes published in uh, some journal called the new england in june 2021 all righty so what was the research question for this drug that i also cannot pronounce 
Yeah, exactly. Essentially, it was like pretty uninspiring, but not in a bad way. There's just been so many other cardiovascular outcome trials that have been done. Um, here's another one, but this one also looked at renal endpoints. So really the question is, does this GLP-1 agonist improve cardiovascular and renal outcomes in patients with type 2 diabetes? Okay. I like it. Uh, renal outcomes are important and we don't have a lot of data uh, or studies that have great hard renal outcomes. So why did you think this was important though? Yeah, I agree with you. You know, we now know with the SGLT2 inhibitors, we have at least two randomized trials showing clear benefits in a renal composite outcome. But how about the GLP-1 agonists? GLP-1s are really, really impressive. We know at least four of them, different molecules reduce the risk of cardiovascular events. So how about this uh, new kid on the block? Okay, great. So what was the study design? Uh, Industry-funded placebo-controlled trial across 28-some-odd hospitals. Patients were randomized to a weekly dose of 4 milligrams, 6 milligrams, or placebo included adults with type 2 diabetes, history of cardiovascular disease, which is defined as a prior MI stroke or um, peripheral arterial disease, or renal disease, which was GFR of 25 to 60, and they had an A1C above 7%. They excluded patients who had severe GERD, gastroparesis, pancreatitis, severe retinal disease, um, or use of GLP-1 agonists or DPP-4 in the past three months. Primary outcome was a composite of MI, stroke, cardiovascular death, and then they had a renal outcome, which was um, a really ugly, ugly composite, but it included such things as the need for dialysis, a sustained GFR um, less than 15, a marked rise in their baseline creatinine, incident macro albuminuria, and some other stuff as well. Okay, cool. What do the patients look like? So uh, 5,700 were screened, 4,000 were randomized, um, average age of 65, 33% a female, about a quarter of the patients were from North America, a third from Europe, 87% were white. On average, patients had diabetes for about 15 years. Unsurprisingly, 90% of the patients had cardiovascular disease. The average GFR was 72. The average hemoglobin A1C was 9%. 60% were on insulin. 75% on metformin. 15% on SGLT2s. And the median duration was just under two years. Okay. Sounds like a pretty typical patient that we might see. So what was the main result for this drug that I cannot pronounce? Yeah, exactly. So primary outcome occurred in 7% of patients randomized to the GLP-1 versus 9% um, in those who are not. So that's a 2% absolute risk reduction. That's pretty freaking impressive. So, you know, number needed treat of 50, treat 50 people with this drug for about two years, and you'd expect to see, you know, one fewer events in this cardiac composite, relative risk reduction of about 25%. And the Kaplan-Meier curve sort of split after six months. As more time passes, I like to see when do those curves separate so that I can, you know, let my patients know, listen, you got to take these drugs in order for them to work. Um, and then they also saw a marked reduction in the renal composite outcome. So from 13% if you got the GLP-1 to 18% if you didn't, that's a 5% absolute risk reduction. That's really freaking impressive. Yes, there were some side effects. There were lots of side effects, mainly gastrointestinal side effects. And that's what we see in real life. I should also mention in case I um, mention it in case I didn't already, it's a once a week injection. So um, that's a plus side with these drugs. Okay. What are some of the limitations with the study? 
Yeah, so some of the limitations are that whenever you have composite outcomes, you always want to ask yourself, like, well, what is it driven by? And in the case of the renal outcome, it was just such an ugly composite outcome that it's going to be hard. Like, how are we actually going to articulate this to the patient in front of us? However, it's also really impressive um, to see the clear uh, reduction in the risk of this renal composite outcome. So that's one limitation that's intrinsic to any study with a composite outcome. I think another limitation, these drugs are really, really expensive, um, as we've talked about before. So it's amazing they work. Are they going to be cost effective? I'm not sure this study can't answer that question. Yeah, that's fair. And you're right. The once weekly injection, fantastic, much better than multi-dosing insulin, for example. But I still know some patients who just really don't want to inject themselves with anything. But hey, if it works and it helps and it makes the kidney better, we can just kind of use the general term that it helps your kidneys. Uh, it's pretty impressive. So what's the take home point here? Yeah, take home point here is that, you know, this drug clearly improves both cardiovascular and renal endpoints. And uh, that's impressive. It's clinically relevant. And it's not as if this was a population where no one was taking an SGLT2. There was still a chunk of patients who were taking an SGLT2 inhibitor. So it's just very impressive to see this degree of improvement, despite the background treatment um, a lot of patients were already on. Totally. Uh, practice changing. Can we even get this drug in Canada? No, sir, we cannot. So, you know, I'm already a big fan of um, semaglutide, which is a once weekly um, injection. So I'm already using it as well as SGLT2 inhibitors, as you might have guessed. So definitely practice affirming for me. Okay, great. All right, John, that is it for diabetes. Um, what do you have in terms of the good stuff? For the good stuff, it might have been yesterday or the other day, but there's an article from the CBC, and, and I think this might have been similar to a different story from before, but uh, do you curl? You've been curling before, right? Yeah, I've curled a couple times, yeah. Curled in high school. wasn't very good, but yeah. <laughs> the curling group, man. So two guys curl together. One guy's got really bad kidney disease, and he needs a transplant. So his curling partner ends up testing and finds out that he is a candidate to donate his kidney and does just that. So just a really nice heartwarming story of um, friends, you know, well, you know, curlers helping each other out in a really big way. Yeah. Canadian curlers just helping out other Canadian curlers. That's that's great. Um, my good stuff is, um, have you heard of the comedian um, Sebastian Maniscalco? No. Oh, perfect. His stuff is hilarious. He has this really good bit. Well, there's like a five minute clip, but just the start of it really caught me. We'll put the link in the show notes, of course. But essentially, it starts out like, I don't know if you ever tried to hook up cable, but you get these recorded calls saying, we're going to monitor the call for quality assurance. And then he says, and then the person gets on the line. And he says, just so you know, I'm recording the call on my end too. You got me, I got you. <laughs> anyway, it's really funny. You'll have to watch it. He's got some great stuff. I like that, yeah. <laughs> That's good. All right. Anyway, John, uh, great to chat. Uh, we'll talk again soon. And uh, good luck out there in uh, Calgary. Totally. See you next time. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.